Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was the youngest MP in her party when she entered Parliament in 2015. She comes from a family of trade unionists, her grandfather was an official for the Fire Brigade Union and her uncle a member of the National Union of Mine Workers. She was described by former House of Commons Speaker John Burko as possessing a terrier-like intensity in her pursuit of government ministers for answers and of ongoing rows over the government's Brexit plans and interpretation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Her role in Keir Starmer's Shadow Cabinet as the Shadow Secretary for Northern Ireland puts her in the perfect position to do just that. My guest today is Louise Haig. Did I get anything wrong? I'm just disappointed he didn't call me a Yorkshire Terrier. <laughs> that was yeah. the obvious. Next time, maybe yeah. Lindsay Hoyle can do that. Maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll put um, that in his hand. So thank you for joining us today. And in person as well, we're hoping we get to do more in-person podcasts, but <laughs> with the current political weather, we will see. On this podcast, we like to begin by just talking a little bit about what you're doing before you became a politician. Mm-hmm. So you were born in Sheffield. Your mother brought you and your brother up. Um, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Oh, definitely. My parents divorced when I was um, in my very early teens, just before I was a teenager. But my mum, as you say, brought me and my brother up. Me and my brother are very, very close in age. He's a year, a month and a day younger than me. So it's about as close as you can be without actually being twins and we're still um very close um, does that mean you get to be like the bossy older sister oh 100 percent. Yeah. yeah yeah my mum always used to say when we were sort of falling out and fighting when we were little that you know he, one day he'd be bigger than me and he'd beat me up in, in return but fortunately that's never come to pass he lives just outside London now and he works for the Metro newspaper as a sports journalist he's constantly replying to my Twitter trolls and defending me on social media which I appreciate <laughs> although sometimes I think it, you know it just uh, it just encourages them even further so yeah yeah, I also noticed on Twitter recently, if you obviously reply to some seven followers, yeah, no one's exactly. going to see it until you reply and then everyone sees it. Exactly. And that's what they're asking for, isn't it? You know, they're asking for that kind of um, notoriety. Yeah, he thinks he's being helpful, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely a very happy childhood growing up in Sheffield. And uh, I'm so proud to represent my home city now and represent my family as well back in Sheffield. You know, my dad uh, lives in my constituency. It was the first time he ever voted Labour when he was forced to vote for me in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> kind of have to when it's your own surname on the ballot paper. Yeah, though we have had guests on the podcast before whose parents have not voted really? for them. But it tends to be um, Tories and families where the parents are Labour. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a bit more tribal. Um, how does your dad normally lean? So my dad is very, um, he's very, very traditional. You know, when we were growing up, I would ask him how he'd vote. And he said, well, there's such a, such a thing as a secret ballot in this country, Louise. So I'm not 100%, I'm pretty sure he voted Lib Dem before he voted for me. Yeah, my dad will never tell me how he votes. <laughs> um, now, you attend to private school but you've since said that you don't support private schools so I just wondered was that anything to do with your personal experience of, of that school was it just more generally yeah, a policy no, thing? I mean I was you know I was really really lucky that I was able to go to this that my parents sent me to the school I did and I want every child to have the same access to the kind of education that I did if I had children myself I wouldn't choose to send them to a private school that was my parents parents decision and uh, I just want to make sure that every local school for every kid is, is of that same standard. I mentioned in the introduction that in your extended family there are trade unionists and I just wanted to apologize something that came up much when you were growing up was yours a particularly political family no it's funny it was always in the background really of my family so neither of my parents are kind of explicitly 
political than my mum has in the last few years joined the Labour Party. In fact, as well, she's another one who was a late convert to Labour. She only voted Labour for the first time in 2010, which was a very strange year to come to Labour for the first time. Um, but you credit um, yourself for bringing them all in. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So, yeah, neither of them were ever um, particularly expressly political, but it was always there in the background. So you mentioned in the intro that my uncle was a miner and he worked down Markham Pit. He was on strike in the 80s. My granddad, who I never met, he worked for the fire service he wasn't a firefighter himself because he'd actually lost a leg in the second world war he was a marine commando and he had his leg blown off um, so he worked in the control room but he was very active in the fire brigades union and then my aunt my mum's sister moved to south africa in the 70s and uh, worked for the international committee of the red cross like campaigned against apartheid would harbour ANC activists in her flat in Pretoria and help smuggle um, stuff in for prisoners that were on Robben Island. So always been very much in the background of my family and my extended family, very, very political. So I guess it kind of seeped into me that way. But it wasn't really until my very late teens that I became party political. And it was because of a teacher at my school, actually, my economics teacher, who kind of obviously never encouraged me to join the Labour Party because a teacher would never do such a thing, Um, but kind of opened my eyes to where my values fit in the party political landscape I don't think I'd ever actually met anyone else that was a member of a political party until that moment so it was him that really inspired me to join and become active in the in the Labour Party. Now you studied briefly at LSE mm. um, government and economics mm-hmm. but you didn't complete your degree there you moved and um, you proved said you didn't really in- enjoy student life there what was it about LSE? Um... I remember looking around some London unis and I don't know if that seems like there was that much community. No, I think that's right. It's a very small campus right in the middle of London and it's extremely focused academically, which isn't 100% of what you want from universities. <laughs> you want a balance. And I was ready for that balance. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't enjoy it one little bit. It's very heavily focused towards postgrads as well. You know, I think only about 50% of the population are undergrads. And it didn't, it, exactly that, it didn't have that community kind of spirit. I, I had to, so expensive. To exactly, I was just going to say that as well. I worked throughout uh, university and I worked almost full time, even when I moved to Nottingham to to be able to afford to live and, and see myself through university. Um, and there was just no way I could have could have done that, continued to do that in London. Um, so yeah, I you know it was it was a, I was so excited when I, I remember being so proud and so excited to get into LSE. It was a real disappointment that I didn't kind of see that through. But actually, um, moving to Nottingham and completing my degree there was what opened up my path to get into working in in labour politics. So I kind of feel you know these things happen for a reason. Well, so you got in. Yeah, <laughs> you know, proven that. Yeah, Take yeah. That <laughs> um, it was also the other thing. I mean, it's very very public school. I mean, I, yes, I went to a private school in Sheffield but it was like they thought I was common as muck there <laughs> I was the most northern person they'd ever come across I just really felt I didn't didn't fit in at all you went to Nottingham and you studied politics you mentioned how um it was perhaps a pathway to doing more with Labour so what I was going to ask was did you ever get involved in the student politics scene was there one we yeah. often hear about Oxford and Cambridge but you know yeah. I remember going to an event early on about Nottingham Labour students and just thinking this is a bit odd I'd just rather be in the pub with my other mates so no I, as I say that part of the reason why I left LSE was because I was ready for the <laughs> for the other side of the university <laughs> lifestyle Jess Phillips on this podcast we asked her about this I think and she was like yeah I mainly did Labour 
Neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> Which probably said that she watched a lot of Neighbours. Yeah, exactly. And spent a lot of time in the kind of campus pubs. There's 14 pubs on Nottingham University campus, so there's plenty to get, <laughs> to get my teeth round. Um, so no, no, I was never involved in student politics. And to be honest, looking back on that now, I'm, that's something I'm, I'm pleased about. You see it still played out. Even people that left uni like 20, 30 years ago, they're still kind of traumatised or like affected by what went on in the in the union student politics and it's it's bizarre so I'm, I'm in retrospect I'm very glad I didn't. You graduate and at what point did you decide to have a career in politics because prior to becoming an MP you worked for a few Labour MPs. I very nearly joined the army on leaving university. I'd graduated in 2008 and there were basically no jobs around at all. All the graduate programmes had closed up, even the internship programmes had all closed down and so I was uh, attracted to going to Sandhurst. I had my place booked at Sandhurst to go and apply there. And then it was whilst I was waiting for that to come up that Graham Allen, who was the MP for Nottingham North at the time, advertised around the politics department and said he took in and advertised that he had a vacancy for a researcher. He gave that every year to someone who'd completed politics at Nottingham. And I just went for it, never having, I don't think at that point I'd actually ever met an MP before either. So I just sort of took a shot got it and then ended up working down in parliament that was the first time I'd ever set set foot in parliament as well when I when I started working for him um, and that opened up a whole world of access to the Labour Party and to national Labour Party politics that I hadn't really engaged in before. And then you uh, managed to get to stand for your home seat yes yeah. was that planning because it's also a Labour safe seat so you would imagine there are quite a few people who, who might have that eye on it yeah exactly and that that is what normally happens isn't it when there's there's a seat and when there's someone that's it must be so awful being someone that's seen as nearly resigning or nearly retiring because you just get all these people like hovering <laughs> around and encroaching on your scene Tired. yeah exactly like you'll know when you're looking old that people start like yeah, sniffing around but actually in Sheffield Healy my predecessor Meg Munn retired really quite unexpectedly she was only in her mid-50s she'd only only done 10 years so I don't think anybody well no nobody really expected her to go and it came a bit out of the blue so there wasn't really any that was an obvious successor and it was my union that that gave me a ring and said what do you think do you fancy it is likely going to be an all-women shortlist and I was like no I don't be daft I was 26 at the time and uh, I just thought I didn't stand a cat and L's chance um, but they said just why don't you try it just throw your cat in the ring uh, throw your cat in the ring throw your hat in the why ring why not just throw a hat or a cat yeah <laughs> throw something in the ring um, and um, yeah I mean I'd never I'd never really it never really crossed my mind to stand to be an MP before because it I would only have ever wanted to stand to, to represent Sheffield. It never occurred to me that we would ever, I would ever have an opportunity to do that because I was away living in London. I'd moved down to London and carried on living in London after my degree. And I just didn't think there would be a, uh, an option. So when that came up, I thought, yeah, we'll give it a shot. And then after a seven-week, very intensive selection period, I won. And then a year later, I was elected. So it was a bit of a whirlwind. What do you think won it for you? Do you think it was your local connection or did you like have a particularly rising speech? <laughs> um, yeah, I think definitely we're very parochial in Sheffield, very parochial. Um, I mean, I remember there was a candidate from Rotherham and they were like, what's she doing here? So, you know, coming into Sheffield from four <laughs> miles down lane. the road. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so um, I think that certainly helped. Yeah, and, and it's partly the speech at the end, but it's also a very intensive process of going around meeting members and and it's, it's very difficult I remember listening to Lisa's podcast when she did your podcast a few months ago and, and her saying how 
difficult and strange it is standing for selection because it's the first time you go from asking people to vote for the Labour Party, which is very easy because that's what it baked into you and you're used to selling that, to suddenly being, you've got to vote for me and this is why I'm better than the other candidates. Especially, I find it in an all-women shortlist because you're then competing with other women as well and only other women and telling them why you're better than them and that was very uncomfortable. You have to get your head around that very quickly and then once you've done that, then you can... You can sell it to the public as well, but doing it internally in the party is the hardest thing I've had to do. And I want to talk about, obviously, your career in Parliament, but I just wonder first, I suppose for our listeners, and it's something I think I discussed with Lisa, which is just, where would you describe yourself as sitting on the spectrum of Labour, just in terms of left? Because we hear terms, which I think obviously can be a bit mean, it's like soft left, hard left. No one likes to be called hard left. Um, <laughs> you know, flair, which Some is people do. right. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe rephrase it. Um, but I just wonder, I mean, how would you describe your kind of why you're left wing or, or where you sit? Yeah, I suppose... Yeah, and I, I suppose most would consider me soft left, but that is totally meaningless to anyone outside the Labour Party, I, th- I think. You know, I mean, I am, you know, of the traditional left of the Labour Party. I've, I've come from the, I come from the trade union kind of background. I was a workplace rep before I was elected. I hold fairly traditional left-wing views. I voted against the replacement of Trident. I rebelled against uh, abstention on the, on the welfare bill. But, you know, I, well, maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe rather than soft left, it's pragmatic left. I think maybe that's a sensible and relatively reasonable description of where I am. Now, when you entered Parliament, you were the youngest in your party. Yep. Did you have, I suppose, an alliance with other young MPs, regardless of party, being like, hey... Well, no, I was fuming with them because I was meant to be the youngest in the whole of Parliament, so I was really cross that there were other yeah, MPs. Was in the younger than you, was it? It was Mari Black, obviously. Okay. Yeah, and she got a lot of attention for it ex- too. Yeah, yeah, no, and she, she's fantastic. And then there were there were a couple of Tory MPs. I think Tom Perseglove is younger than me, and there was an there was another one I can't remember who it was. But Parliament is just getting younger and younger all the time, isn't it? So there was quite an intake of young MPs in that in in 2015. But I'm sure other guests have explained that. Parliament is just like school or university and that you hang out with your year group or your intake. So, you know, 2015 was my gang. So that's your that's your kind of group of friends. And that extends, not, you know, not just to your own party, but to other MPs from that from the same intake as well, from other parties. Yeah, also it might have been a blessing in disguise because I remember as the youngest MP, Mary Black, there were a lot of articles about what she might order in the various Parliament bars. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think she was unfairly maligned for ordering a snake bite when no. actually it was a strong bone black. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they'd serve you a snake by Parliament. <laughs> Definitely not now. No. <laughs> now, in your first year in Parliament, this is what our researcher in the office has said. Oh you clocked up 90 speeches. Did I? And asked 471 questions. Does that sound right to you? <laughs> it's quite active. It's, uh, yeah, it is. I'm trying to think of what on earth I could have asked nearly 500 times. Yeah, no, I mean, I was. I remember getting stuck in straight away. And yeah, I had... still have a very good researcher who's been with me and is now my political advisor for Northern Ireland so I think he can probably take credit for a lot of those written written questions I imagine most of them were Uh, 90 speeches I I, I remember sitting on a lot of bill committees so that really racks up your uh, speaking contributions but yeah I mean I I am a proper teacher's pet I was a real keen bean I was getting straight (laughs) straight stuck in in, Um, now I wanted to just talk about the various Labour leaderships we had because um, you supported Andy Burnham Mm -hmm. in that one but you nominated Jeremy Corbyn now, 
lots of chat from various people such as Margaret Becker who mm-hmm. you know when people think back to that I was just wondering given you then supported Owen Smith do you stand by nominating Jeremy Corbyn the f- you know people that oh we'll get him on the ballot we'll increase yeah. the debate yeah. if you think of everything that followed is it a decision yeah, you regret you know, or not it's something I've, I've, I think about and have thought about an awful lot you know I I remember having this conversation with Andy and his team at the time and because I entered parliament feeling very much on on the left of the uh, of the party and Andy was making those noises but then it, it felt kind of like he'd just banked the left support as soon as he got on the ballot and then started tacking you know tacking in directions that I wasn't comfortable with so around the welfare bill saying he wasn't going to take any support from the trade unions and I, it just it all made me quite uncomfortable so that was really the main reason that I nominated Jeremy because I did it wasn't just to get him on the ballot it wasn't just to hear his 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 voice but actually to make sure that there was a true debate across the whole tradition of the Labour Party. And, you know, whatever came next, uh, yes, I take responsibility and my share of responsibility and because I served on on Jeremy's front bench for four and a half years. So, you know, I I play my part in, in that as well. But I think some of that needed to play out and the party was crying out for voices that were clearer, you know, anti-austerity and, and, and clearer in that in that space at the time. So some of that was always going to have to play out in some sense or another. I've not quite answered the question yet because I've not quite decided myself, if I'm totally honest. <laughs> I guess it's hard to weigh up there. Yeah, exactly. And it did feel like that moment in the welfare bill, you know, yeah. when Labour took the decision they did and all the yeah. leadership... It was a moment perhaps if they hadn't had another candidate on, that would have led to other stuff festering. Exactly. It felt like it was sort of, it was struggling to come above the surface in some way or another. And if it wasn't going to come up then, it was going to come up in some other way later on. It just felt like something had to break through in order to have the debate, get get it out of people's systems one way or another. I mean, it has, the last five years have been profoundly damaging to to the Labour Party. I say the last five, but the last two and a half really the most um to the to the labor party and the labor i hate this word but labor brand and uh but that that it goes far beyond you know just jeremy winning that was for lots of other reasons as well now you chaired lisa nandy's leadership mm-hmm. campaign why did you back lisa um she also describes her as soft left though i remember uh. didn't she say it sounded a bit like a jellyfish <laughs> or something um, yeah. or like this nondescript yeah. thing yeah, yeah. Um, invertebrate yeah, that's yeah. Like, yeah uh why did back lisa um well we've been we've been friends for a for a long time since she was uh, since just before she was elected actually and i've always really admired her i think she's a almost peerless communicator really i think she's incredibly good at reaching out to those parts of the country that labor has been losing touch with over the last not just the last two and a half years the last 15 years um really and i really believed we were ready for a, a woman leader as well yeah now we'll have to wait on that yeah. but um Keir Starmer becomes leader as we as we know and then he does appoint you to his shadow cabinet were you surprised by that and also how did it come about well I th- yeah yeah because was... you kind of think if you support a rival campaign there's often a precedent not in the case of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt um <laughs> where you expect the close rivals to get jobs but not necessarily their, their big supporters absolutely yeah no it was it was incredibly gracious I mean I've always you know Kira and I were elected at the same time got on very well and he was very gracious when when uh, I told him I was supporting Lisa and he completely understood because we've been friends and we were so uh, Lisa and I were so close so no I wasn't I wasn't expecting it I was obviously 
really I, I was obviously hoping for something and there have been all kinds of speculation from all kinds of quarters in fact I think it might have been a spectator journalist that tipped me for Northern Ireland so I and I remember looking at it and thinking god I'd love to do Northern Ireland that'd be so interesting and he rang me it must have been quite late in the appointments uh, and offered it me I, I'll never forget it actually because he rang me just I was sitting in the garden and I'm extremely arachnophobic and I looked at and there was a massive spider on my shoulder and I was screaming and trying to get it off my shoulder as Kira <laughs> and I think he was quite confused about what was going on as I answered the phone. But the spider was on the floor by yeah, the time. Yeah, it would be a very calm, job. cool shadow <laughs> Um On the day of things like, um, you know, a shadow cabinet being formed, do you have to check your phone quite a lot? Are you looking to make sure you have bars of signal yeah, yeah. at all times? Exactly. And it's the time when everyone starts pranking each other by calling each other from uh, withheld numbers. <laughs> have you done that before? No, no, no. It's so cruel, but I have had it done to me. <laughs> Did the people fess up afterwards? Yeah, oh no, yeah, yeah. yeah. I won't yeah. tell you who did it because it's horrible, but yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, I know plenty of people on all sides who've done that. There's also a slight game I remember back when you were allowed to drink in Parliament, uh, you know, on the terrace, but you can see on reach off the days, you know, just uh, Tory MPs on their phones, obviously. Or playing pretending the game. to be on the phone, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. But playing the games yeah. and then people leaving because they have phone calls, um, yeah. which goes back to the point that Parliament is quite high school. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, um, I want to talk about your new role. There was a moment I think we can probably everyone on the podcast will uh, will have heard about by now where Brandon Lewis uh, was answering a UQ, so an urgent question that you put forward mm-hmm. on the Internal Market Bill. And it was uh, about whether or not this breached international law. And he just stood up and said, it does. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think everyone kind of stopped for a bit and thought they got it wrong. What was it like watching that? Well, it was quite extraordinary because... It was about half an hour into the urgent question, so I'd um, I'd asked my questions, which included obviously, did it breach? Had the, you know had there been all these kind of technical issues around it? And then loads of other people had asked questions of a similar nature, and then Bob Neal repeated the question, and Brandon Lewis said, "Oh yeah, and yeah, 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 it breaches international law in a you know just in a t- in a limited and specific way." And he just threw it in so casually. And me and Bob Neal were just looking at each other. We sort of did a kind of cartoon double take at each other and his jaw was hitting the floor. And everyone was suddenly texting me saying, did he just say that? Did you just, did you just hear that? And my research, my advisor was saying, hang on, I'm going to have to watch this back. I'm going to have to watch it because nobody could believe there is because they'd been, they'd been so desperately trying to play it down the whole way through. And in, in response, immediately to my question, Brandon Lewis had been saying, look, we're just doing what a responsible government does. This is just tying up legal loose ends. And of course, all of that would have been reassuring if their chief legal advisor hadn't just resigned um, in direct response to exactly what they were doing. And then to admit later on, it, it was extremely confusing. And I have to admit, I half wondered whether he'd read out the thing that said, do not read this bit out by accident. <laughs> so and, you know, it, the whole the whole last couple of weeks really have been extre- incredibly baffling because it's just not been clear exactly what the government is trying to achieve and what their motivations are. If this was to try and push the EU into coming towards them on certain negotiations, it's completely failed. All it's done is serve to ratchet up tensions and make agreement much less likely it's just made businesses and communities in in northern ireland feel more unstable it's risked everything that they said they wanted to achieve so yeah it's been a confusing couple of weeks now it's clear your job to provide an opposition perhaps a constructive one but i wondered 
Given there's so many Tory MPs, Theresa May and others that seem to have really taken on the mantle of opposing the government on this, is it a slight one way like you're just, you kind of just need to sit back and that obviously you are doing things, but <laughs> is it a bit weird when you look over and you're like, oh, they're asking all yeah. the things I want to ask? <laughs> well, it was in the UQ, I'd, I'd said in, in, in my spiel, you know, this is ultimately about trust, isn't it? You know, how can the people of Northern Ireland trust this government who say one second that the protocol is there to protect the Good Friday Agreement and then say the next that it completely undermines? It. How can the British people trust you when you said you had an oven ready deal and now you're saying it's contradictory and ambiguous? And how can our international partners and potential uh, trading partners trust us to enter deals? And then Theresa May got up and I thought, I have to say, you know, because I'd said at the beginning, you know, Labour wants us to get a deal. I thought she was going to stand up and, you know, say, well, it's nice finally that you do. I thought she was going to have a go, go at me. But actually she then just immediately repeated the lines that I'd used, which was exactly like, how can how can we be trusted on the world stage? And I've got, you know, obviously a former prime minister saying it is much more um, interesting than me saying it. So she really stole my thunder. <laughs> so, but it's fine. You know, if the, if the Tories are falling out amongst themselves, then uh, that's obviously much more uh, media worthy and that's going to have more impact on the government. So we're, we're more than happy to sit back and allow that to happen. Um, now, I want to ask you just about this new parliament, because I think you've spoken about it previously, but the last parliament, we saw lots of female MPs decide not to stand for re-election mm. you know there's a lot of abuse out there mm. do you think things have improved just by the fact that perhaps we're not you know at that point where everything was very febrile over brexit or do you think there's still a problem in terms of abuse towards mps through the latter months of last year it was really bad wasn't it it was there were repeated violent and and death threats particularly to to female mps I was talking to anna turley the other day who lost her seat in Redcar and she had you know marches I think by the EDL or you know but you know against her specifically through her seat you know people were feeling very vulnerable things aren't quite as febrile or, or feel quite as dangerous as they did then but in terms of abuse and comments on looks and um yeah and general appearance and I had a guy uh, who's very involved in the defund the BBC campaign the other day tweeting about you know I should have more decorum because I've got dyed red hair. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, there's, um, you know, I, I get constant, constant, constant comments uh, on my appearance on, on social media. It's a real delicate balance, isn't it? Because you want to call it out and you want to show how ridiculous it is, but you also don't want to put off other women from coming in. And I think the more the more we talk about it and the more we highlight it, the more off-putting it is, particularly to younger women and, and not just women, but people from ethnic minority and LGBT and disabled, you know, people who are disabled. It's as bad as it is being a being a woman in politics. It's even more horrific for people from any kind of that background. So no, I think I think things are getting worse. If anything, I don't think the social media companies are doing anything to address it at all. And I think there are still politicians that make it worse as well by refusing to set an example. Do comments when people talk about your dress code, obviously ridiculous, but does it get to you personally or does it just kind of make you want to wear brighter colours? Yeah, no, it definitely encourages me. <laughs> I get more I'm and more extreme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, uh, no, I mean, God knows. I'm, I'm, there's not many places for me to go next. You see me coming in with like bright green hair or something. It's, uh, do you know, because I, I used to be a, a police officer as well, so I'm, you know, I was 
used to putting on a uniform and being and that being the the thing that people would attack and people obviously would attack you and call your names and stuff and you were you hid behind that and you knew they were attacking that so that has translated into being a politician as well I kind of feel like that's it's an armor that you can hide behind but not everyone has as thick skin as me and it's difficult as well because especially as a woman in politics it's such a delicate line to tread between having that thick skin but also remaining empathetic and showing human emotion and you can so easily tip one way or another and then fall foul of being accused of either being inhuman or aping men or or being too um, thin-skinned. So, you, yeah, you can't win. Now, a few very final things. First of just, we have had this week Keir Starmer's leadership speech, mm-hmm. the rather strange digital conference. Mm-hmm. So I think he had got to address an empty museum. Mm. <laughs> um, but at nine in the morning, not something I think anyone particularly envies, <laughs> but um, seemed to pull it off. Um, at least in- it wasn't post-conference hangover. Uh, we all had that to thank for. <laughs> that is a good point, actually. <laughs> um, just drinking alone in that case. Um, but I think one of the things he said in his speech which I think has riled someone in the one side of the Labour base was kind of this idea that Labour was being read as Labour deserving or needing to take accountability for uh, the election loss that they just Mm, had mm. and you've seen Momentum for example come Mm. out and be quite critical Mm, of that mm. do you think um, you need Starmer and probably Labour leadership more generally needs to try to keep groups like Momentum on side? Do you think they're still important? Um, I, th- I think the membership is incredibly important and it is it is a strength. And it's a strength that we don't use, I don't think, anywhere near effectively enough. Momentum or kind of... Yeah, mem- yeah. well, momentum, of, momentum are a broad base of members within, within the party and there are some that I perhaps would say don't necessarily support the concept of parliamentary democracy and in which case they don't belong in the Labour Party but there are plenty of members of Momentum that um, are young and have... Are in, you know, were inspired by Jeremy's uh, leadership to join the party and need to be kept on board and need to be listened to. But, you know, in terms of deserving to lose, I think we all need to take responsibility for the election defeat. I don't think Keir was blaming ordinary members that were out there pounding the streets. I think he's saying that we all need to reflect on the roles that we all played and face some hard truths. And when you look at that result, what do you think was the do you think it was a mix of factors that led to the result there was because some will point to Jeremy Corbyn specifically yeah. others point to Brexit yeah I mean yeah, yeah yeah I suppose lack of economic credibility yeah so it's a combination to, yeah. of all those isn't it yeah and each of them compounded <laughs> so the other sorry. yeah exactly <laughs> But, you know, like I was I was out in um, just to the south of my seat, neighbouring seat is uh, North East Derbyshire, which Labour lost in 2017 to the Tories. Uh, it was a 2000 majority and uh, it's now a 14000 majority. I think it's not if not far off. I spent an awful lot of time there in the in the general election and we, you know, we flooded it with activists. And it was exactly that. It was a combination of, of, of Jeremy, of Brexit. But that seat has been on the long term decline, as I say, since 2005. So it's not not just Jeremy they didn't like Ed either they didn't particularly like Gordon Brown and so this is why Keir's emphasis on a new leadership certainly isn't just a differentiation between with Jeremy or even with Boris it's something that we've never seen before. Um, Now slightly lighter questions to end (laughs) quick fire if you could have any former two Labour leaders around for a dinner they can be dead obviously we'd bring back to life Um, who would you have? (laughs) Um, we would do rule of six, but I just think then we're going to get well, everyone all of them. in. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're just looking ahead, basically, to November rules. Yeah, yeah. Atley and Wilson, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be most interested. To hear and from them. same for former Tory leaders, if you have to have two round. Um, well, I'd be. I mean, given my current role, I'd be interested to 
speak to John Major because he led the way on the Good Friday Agreement. Ted Heath would be interesting. Yeah. I would be interested to talk to Ted Heath, yeah. And just about do you have any friends who are Tory? Obviously, famous question. Is that <laughs> yeah. when your party no longer there? Well, I play on the women's parliamentary football team and I get you know, and Tracy Crouch plays on that and Gillian Keegan. Uh yeah, I'm good I'm good mates with Okay, and then the final question is one we ask everyone, which is just what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Yeah, it's an interesting one that I you know, I've been reflecting on this and I've I'm actually really lucky to be surrounded by lots of good mates. Uh, my problem is that I don't listen to their good advice so you know <laughs> my worst advice. advice is uh, is the only advice I've ever give, given myself uh, I, I was asking a couple of mates this and my friend Gloria Di Piero who was the MP for Ashfield did remind me that she has repeatedly advised me to dye my hair blonde and I, I, I think that's probably the worst advice I've uh, I've received because I would look completely ridiculous <laughs> we get more comments yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you Lise and thank you for listening if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Hold up. 